this is this is my favorite story today. Hi, I should give you the intro. My name's Philip DeFranco. Hit the like button and stuff. This is my favorite story today. Right, so yesterday we talked about four LAPD officers. I called them heroes. They saved that man from a crash plane right before he got hit by a train. But today we have to talk about some of their lying douchebag colleagues, right? The other side of the coin. So this story starts back in 2017 with two officers by the name of Louis Lozano and Eric Mitchell who were working on patrol in Los Angeles. And on the day in question, Captain Darnell Davenport, the patrol commanding officer for their division, responded to a radio call about a robbery at a Macy's and he called for backup. And while he's responding to call thanks to new documents, we know that he said that he saw something odd, a police car tucked away back in an alley just feet away. And to remove any question that it was some other car, you had patrol supervisor Sergeant Jose Gomez seeing from the commander's board that Lozano and Mitchell's car was in fact located near the scene, but when he requested that they respond twice, he received no response from them. When later asked why, Mitchell says, I didn't hear it. Lozano saying, I couldn't hear anything over the loud music. And that is when the problems for Lozano and Mitchell really started because here's, here's a tip. When you lie about something that happened, you should try to remember, was I being filmed by A or multiple cameras at that time? Because the unit's dash cam video was recording the whole thing. It exposed them. Not only had they received the radio call, they discussed the call and whether they should assist Captain Davenport, but both deciding not to respond. And if you're like, okay, it's completely weird, but maybe they were doing something more important. Do you know what they were doing? They were trying to catch a Snorlax in Pokemon Go. And as someone that's played Pokemon Go, I mean, this thing consumed my life for a while. Just going through the documents on this was amazing, and I, we just have to go through at least some. With one part of the document reading. For approximately the next 20 minutes, the dash cam caught them discussing Pokemon as they drove to different locations where the virtual creatures apparently appeared on their mobile phones. And on their way to the Snorlax location, Officer Mitchell alerted Officer Lozano that a, quote, Togetic just popped up, noting that it was on Crenshaw just south of 50th. And after Mitchell apparently caught the Snorlax, he exclaimed, got him, with him agreeing to go get the Togetic, and they drove off. When their car stopped again, Mitchell was recorded saying, don't run away, don't run away, while Lozano described how he, quote, buried it and ultra-balled the Togetic before announcing, got him. Mitchell saying, I'm still trying to catch it. Holy crap, man, this thing is fighting the crap out of me. And apparently after finally capturing it, he said, the guys are going to be so jealous. Right, so all of that, uh, one, seems pretty straightforward what they were doing, and two, kind of the nerdiest shit ever. I say that as even like a nerd myself, but for me as someone that is familiar with this game, them trying to explain lie, what they were actually doing instead of playing Pokemon, it's so fucking stupid. With the newly released documents explaining, despite the video evidence, the cops denied playing Pokemon Go while on duty, claiming they weren't playing the game itself, they were just monitoring a Pokemon tracker. And as far as, quote, capturing Pokemon, Officer Lozano insisted that what he was referring to was capturing an image of the Pokemon on the tracking application to share with friends. With Officer Mitchell saying that his statements about fighting the Togetic referred to, quote, relaying that information to the groups on my app, and adding that in order to take the picture, occasionally the creature will fight. Lozano saying they weren't engaged in a game, rather it was a social media event, with Mitchell saying he didn't consider the application a game because it was not advertised as a game. But, okay, at the very least, admitting that they did leave their beat area in search of a Snorlax, but insisting that they both did it as part of an extra patrol and to chase this mythical creature. But with all that said, as far as what happened to the officers, they were terminated, though, they did appeal their termination, fantastically arguing that somehow all of this was wrong because the dash cam recording was used against them as evidence, saying the city had violated the law and it denied them specific protection. But now, Ultimately, an appeals court responded, don't be stupid, stupid, and they upheld the termination. But then, even with that, this whole situation may not be over, because a lawyer for the two officers told the Washington Post that they are considering what options they might take in the future, including appealing to the state Supreme Court. Because yeah, that's what the California Supreme Court should be focusing on, whether or not police officers should be okay with capturing Snorlax rather than a robber who is in the act. It was a robbery in progress, y'all. Anyway, if you have any thoughts, <laughs> share them down below. And then, we need to talk about Trevor Jacobs. 
So Trevor Jacob is a former Olympic snowboarder and he was recently involved in a plane crash. It was a flight that happened back in November. Trevor actually posting the video to YouTube back on December 23rd. So what we know is that he took off from Lompoc Airport near Santa Barbara, California. He was headed to Mammoth Lake. The video showing the takeoff and not long after, while he's above the Los Padres National Forest, he starts to seem concerned about the engine, but not explicitly saying why. But all of that leads to him jumping out of the plane while it's in the air, using a parachute so he can land while the plane crashes into the mountain. Right, an absolutely insane moment. He ends up landing in a bunch of sharp bushes and brush, cutting himself, trying to get out of it. In the video explaining why he abandoned the plane. Well, where the hell am I gonna land a freaking plane? I'm gonna die. That's why I always freaking fly with a parachute. Trevor then spends hours going through the mountains looking for water for anyone to help because he has no phone service. But luckily, it ends with him finally finding someone to help and thanking them for saving his life. But yesterday's plane story was a fluke. This is on the Philip DeFranco show. You know why we're talking about this. Since the release of that video and more people seeing it, a ton of people don't buy his story. With the FAA also telling Aviation Web that it is investigating this incident, though declining to give further details. According to the Santa Barbara Independent, there are some questions that remain unanswered, including when and how he got the plane. The source is also reportedly telling that outlet that he never intended to fly it all the way to Mammoth and that the aircraft was in need of major maintenance. Which is also why you had the likes of flight instructor Robert Perry telling the Santa Barbara Independent, it's all very suspect. If a plane is out of maintenance, that's the most dangerous time to fly. Perry also finding other elements of the video to be off saying that Trevor could have actually landed the plane, explaining from the looks of it, he could have guided the plane 15 or 20 more miles and landed it on more level ground. Also saying that it was odd that Trevor wore a parachute because it can be very difficult to do so in such a small plane. The Independent also noting that despite Trevor's claim that he always wears one when flying. He's actually posted several videos where he flies without one. You also had Trent Palmer, a YouTuber and private pilot, reacting to this situation, saying that he found a number of red flags throughout the video, including the fact that Trevor used a selfie stick to record himself jumping out of this life or death situation. If he's really in an emergency situation right now, this is life or death, um, why would he be, well, one, why would you have a camera in your hand and, and selfie it, but why are you tracking out and, and looking back and posing for something like this. Palmer also echoing the fact that he thinks that there was space for him to land the plane instead of jumping out. Also saying that he understands why people think that this crash was staged and that he thinks it's a dangerous and reckless thing to do. When someone pulls a stunt like this and creates what I would definitely call hazard to persons and property on the surface by jumping out of their airplane when it wasn't necessary and letting it fly down and crash, and sure, it was in a sparsely populated area. No one was hurt. It didn't cause a fire, but that's not to say that it couldn't happen. It's just, all of this is just so grossly irresponsible. And for now, it's gonna be interesting to see if Trevor Jacobs says anything publicly, uh, according to the Santa Barbara Independent. They reached out to him, but he didn't respond, nor has he addressed speculation on social media, but on the video in question, he did take off comments. Yeah, so take that and everything all combined as you will. Personally, I, I know nothing about being a pilot or flying a plane. I'm gonna be one of the normies that just waits for the FAA investigation. Man, if he staged this video for views, I'm so interested to see what the crackdown on him is going to be. But yeah, that said, I do want to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think he faked it? Yes, no, why, why not? Just wow. But from that, I want to take a quick second to thank the sponsor of today's show, Raycon. Raycon's wireless earbuds give you amazing audio quality wherever you go. I use mine while listening to podcasts, Zoom calls, riding my bike, and just when I want to wind down. They're co-founded by audio engineers and some of the music industry's elite who are designing premium wireless audio for half the price without compromise and an incredible customer experience from start to finish. Raycon's everyday earbuds feel incredibly comfortable with optimized gel tips for the perfect noise isolation in-ear fit so they 
won't budge. And I mean, trust me, they will not budge. Plus, they're available in five stylish colors. They sound great with a 32-hour battery life for eight hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass with a built-in mic. So I can also take calls on the go with a press of a button. And they have a 45-day free return policy. With all of this, it's no wonder that Raycon's everyday earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. So what are you waiting for? Click that link in the description or go to buyraycon.com slash Franco and get 15% off your Raycon purchase. And then how much do your favorite creators get paid? Ever watch someone's video or like go through their Instagram and you're like, how much money are you bringing in? And for those that say their answer is no, congratulations on being a better human than I am. I'm nosy, interested, and looking for a reason to be jealous. And for me personally, one of the most interesting sets of creators that I'm interested in are people that blew up on TikTok. Right, direct monetization on TikTok, notoriously horrible. But the ability to go from zero to some insane meteoric rise getting in front of just a, a mind-numbing number of people. It's through the roof and attention and audience equals big dollars. Well, I can't verify these figures myself unless one of these creators wants to go out of their way to contact me. I don't know why you would, but you're free to. Forbes just released the highest paid TikToker list and some of the names you'd expect. Charlie D'Amelio coming in at number one with them saying that she made $17.5 million last year. And as far as how, I mean, she's worked with pretty much every brand under the sun. She has a family reality show on Hulu as well as a whole clothing line. A lot of different avenues. Then number two on the list, keeping it in the family of Dixie D'Amelio, $10 million. Then Addison Ray, 8.5. Bella Porch and Josh Richards coming in at fourth and fifth at five million a piece. Which I will say to me is a little bit surprising. Like with Bella Porch, she's crushing it in a way that very very few other creators, especially creators that are trying to jump into the music industry are. Like just on YouTube, her last two music videos got 90 million and 352 million views. And then you have Josh Richards, who seems to be kind of crushing it right now, both from a content and a business perspective, spanning his audience reach and income, working with Barstool Sports, as well as, I mean, Josh, like an increasing number of creators in this space, especially with the younger people that realize like this is a business from day one, having equity in what you might find to be a shocking number of companies in the space. But also the way I'll close this is by saying, who really knows without seeing someone's balance like this morning, I was absolutely blown away. I was looking online, I saw that Amaranth, right? She's big on Twitch as well as OnlyFans. Like just reading the story, I was like, I thought I was doing well and maybe I need new money managers because she just bought a pool floaty company, like a multi, multi-million dollar deal. But yeah, well, well, there are probably a number of ways to close out this story. And of course, I'd love to know your thoughts about any aspect of it. Personally, my main takeaway is that these last two generations of creators online, I think they're gonna have a lot more staying power than when I first started coming up. Like you're still gonna have the, I burnt through all my money because I thought the money that was coming in was infinite people, but uh, I don't know, all these years in, it's it's still amazing to me that we've gotten to this point. And then this is game changing medical news right here. So right now, as I'm making this video, I believe just in the United States, there are around 106,000 people on the national transplant waiting list. And unfortunately, even with the donations that people are making, there just isn't enough to go around. With 17 people that are waiting for a transplant dying each day. But after what just happened over the weekend, there is more hope than ever for the future. And that's because on Friday, 57 year old David Bennett Sr. became the first person to have a pig's heart successfully transplanted into him. The procedure was absolutely groundbreaking and offers hope to many patients who are waiting for those organs, but doctors at the University of Maryland Medical Center where the operation took place are still saying one step at a time. Saying of the heart, it creates the pulse, it creates the pressure, it is his heart, it's working and it looks normal. We are thrilled, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring us. This has never been done before. With Dr. David Klassen, the chief medical officer of the United Network for Organ Sharing, also warning us to not get ahead of ourselves. Saying doors are starting to open that will lead, I believe, to major changes in how we treat organ failure. But also noting, events like these can be dramatized in the press and it's important to maintain perspective. It takes a long time to mature a therapy like this. But depending on the longer term success of this transplant, I mean, 
we could have maybe advanced a lot here. Like this transplant was initially described by the person getting it as a shot in the dark. In fact, the stars had to align in a morbid way for this to even happen. Simply put, Bennett needed a heart or he was going to die. He had exhausted all other treatment options and he was too sick to qualify for a regular organ. So because all of those other doors were closed for him, that made him eligible to partake in this experimental procedure. But still, even with this being experimental, I think it's important to look at this as a potential day one. And yes, it is likely gonna be years before we see whether this is viable or not for the long term and on that note, for how long. But still, this is an exciting reason to hope. It is a step one, but a reason to hope. Especially when you look at how this is different to other stuff, like pig heart valves have been used in patients for years. Hell, pig skin even being used in skin grafts before, but attempts at using other animal organs within a person have failed. With the biggest issue there being rejection of the organ, but with recent advancement in cloning and gene editing, there are now ways to make organs that are less likely to be rejected by human patients. And in total for this specific situation, 10 genes for this pig were modified. Some are pig genes that are known to cause a severe rejection response in humans, were human genes that were inserted to further reduce the immune system's response. And so not just out of the uh, kind of accidental pun, the good of my heart, I hope Mr. Bennett gets many, many years out of his. This could save hundreds and thousands of people a year, including, selfishly enough, myself, because I'm gonna need a kidney transplant at some point. And honestly, in 2022, if you can give me a reason to hope, I'ma grab it by the horns. And then, will we ever get rid of the filibuster in the Senate? It's been a big question for about a year now since Democrats really haven't been able to pass everything they want to pass because of it. And in a speech this afternoon, President Biden for the first time officially endorsed changing the filibuster in order to pass voting rights bills. Right, with the filibuster in place, it's a rule that requires 60 votes to pass most legislation. Though there are some narrow exceptions where legislation can be passed with a simple majority of 50 senators and a tie-breaking vote from the vice president, such as the budget reconciliation process, or in order to change certain rules. And since Biden took office, and has faced broad obstruction from Republicans, there's been this major push, especially among progressives, to get rid of the filibuster or at least change the rules so they can actually pass the Democratic agenda. This, especially after Republicans have blocked multiple bills from the Democrats aimed at expanding voting rights to counter the unprecedented voting restrictions being imposed by GOP-held state legislatures all over the country. And if you're unfamiliar with the state legislature issue going into the elections in 2022 and 2024, I'll, I'll upload a clip to the Clip channel. I talked about it at the end of last year. It's a massive, horrifying problem that very transparently takes away democracy from the representative democracy that we're supposed to have. And that's something that Biden hit on in his speech today, saying, I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills, debate them, vote, let the majority prevail. And if that bare minimum is blocked, we have no option but to change the Senate rules, including getting rid of the filibuster for this. And while that would be huge, the big question here is where does the Senate stand? Though really the question is where do Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin stand? They're the two Democratic senators who have most gotten in the way of trying to pass a Democratic agenda or trying to do anything in the Senate. They've also both previously said they're opposed to getting rid of the filibuster. So there is this question of even if this change is a limited carve out that will only be used for voting rights legislation, does it do enough for them? As well, to be fair, as this debate has heated up in recent weeks, does this do enough for more moderate Democratic senators who have expressed hesitancy about whether they would support the changes? Right now, as far as the Republican response to the situation, the potential change of the filibuster, you had Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking, saying Republicans would immediately retaliate if Democrats changed the filibuster rules. With places like Axios reporting that McConnell argued that Senate Democrats will silence millions of Americans if they get rid of the rule, saying if my colleagues try to break the Senate to silence those millions of Americans, we will make their voices heard in this chamber in ways that are more inconvenient for the majority and this White House than what anybody has seen in living memory. Which, given what happened last January 6th, is an interesting, fun thing to say. With all that, here's what I'll say, and I'll keep saying this until our democracy dies in the next three years. The transparent nature of this coup from key Republicans, whether it be voting rights restrictions or just straight up allowing state legislatures to go, I don't 
don't care about the will of the people or what the vote was, here's who I want to be president. It's horrifying and it has the support of a shocking number of Republicans because the big lie from Trump and all his cronies at the last election was stolen, which once again, wasn't, that they are effectively going to be able to do what they accuse the other side of doing. And finally, to Mitch McConnell that said that this will silence millions of Americans, that you should expect retaliation, especially, you know, if and when the Republicans take over Congress. You're already gonna do that. You're Mitch McConnell. Precedent doesn't mean shit to you, nor maybe should it. Your whole MO, short of an actual violent coup, is gaining power by any means necessary and using that power most effectively when you have it. And if you wanna talk about silencing millions of Americans, that's the whole fucking point of the Senate. No offense to you, Rhode Island, you're probably great people, but Rhode Island and California get the same representation? Fuck, you wanna talk about silencing millions of Americans? Let's look at the Electoral College. Right, in 2020, seven million more Americans voted for Biden than Trump, but really Biden only won by like 80,000 or so votes because of the Electoral College. But finally, to bring it back to the point of trying to carve out something with the filibuster rule, passing voting rights bills, if Democrats do not pass this and pass it fast, this is not gonna be the same country in a few years. We're talking about democracy falling, even with all the imperfections that we just talked about, what we're looking at is so much worse. I mean, between the heavily gerrymandered maps, the voting restrictions definitely meant to suppress Democratic votes, and of course, state legislatures that can overturn election results like we're staring down the barrel of losing our democracy, having one party rule for the foreseeable future, regardless of what the people want. Like it's very possible given Biden's favorables now, like if those don't move going into the 2024 election and he or whoever is running, like they're around the same, the Republicans could straight out beat him no matter what. But the way that they are trying to set the table is not taking that chance, not risking it, right? Not coming up with better policies, but rather rigging the game. But ultimately that is where that story and today's show ends. With that, I wanna say thank you for watching today's show, being back on the first week back. And remember, my 2022 is very much about putting out more content, giving you guys more news. So if you missed yesterday's Philip DeFranco show, the first show back, you can click or tap right there, or I put out a morning bonus news video. That's gonna be kind of where I put the more not safe for work content that YouTube's likely going to suppress. And tomorrow we have two more videos to look forward to. But to close today's show out, my name's Philip. Philip DeFranco, you've just been filled in. I love your faces and I'll see you tomorrow.